Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their new books across a wide variety of philosophical topics and areas. Today's interview is with Helen Longineau, Clarence Irving Lewis Professor of Philosophy at Stanford University. Her new book, Studying Human Behavior, How Scientists Investigate Aggression and Sexuality, is just out from the University of Chicago Press. What explains human behavior? It is standard to consider answers from the perspective of a dichotomy between nature and nurture, with most researchers today in agreement that it is both. For Longineau, however, the both answer misses the fact that the nature-nurture divide is itself problematic. First, there is no one right way to divide nature from nurture within the scientific approaches to the study of behavior. And second, the dichotomy reinforces and reflects an undue emphasis on explanations that focus on the dispositions of individuals rather than than those that look at patterns of frequency and distribution of behavior within populations. In this groundbreaking volume, Longino looks closely at a variety of different scientific approaches to the study of human aggression and sexuality to reveal the different and incompatible ways they define the factors that explain behavior, how these different explanatory approaches are related to each other, and how the knowledge they provide is publicly disseminated. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Helen. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. Um, I'm very excited to talk about your new book, Studying Human Behavior, How Scientists Investigate Aggression and Sexuality. I guess before we get into the uh, body of the book, uh, it'd be a good idea if you could give us a little bit of background about how you came to the topic of human behavior and these particular um, aspects of human behavior, um, and then how you came to write this book in particular. Okay. Um, Well, I came to the topic in general because I have for a long time been looking at um, certain aspects of research on human behavior. In the past, it was mostly um, focused on uh, sex and gender differences. Um, and I went back to look at research on both aggression and sexuality some years after I'd finished science and social knowledge just to see what was going on. And I was very interested to find uh, a couple of things going on. One was the um, vituperative character of interchanges among uh, proponents of different approaches. Not all of them, but there were some some that quite stood out, and I was curious to understand what that was about. And um, then I was also uh, interested in the kind of social political context in which these debates were being carried out. Interestingly, that had changed somewhat from the kind of context in which the work on 
sex and gender that I've been looking at uh, had been carried out. But research on sex and gender entailed research on uh, aggression and on sexuality. So these were areas that I was kind of familiar with the, some of the research protocols on, so it seemed natural to follow up. Um, in the early 90s, there was a conference at the University of Maryland. I talk about that in the first chapter um, that was named, I think, uh, Genetic... Oh, shoot, I'm going to forget the name exactly, but it's something like um, The Genetics of Violent Behavior. And and uh, that attracted a lot of uh, political attention. And so it's, I was just interested in, in uh, thinking about that some more. Now... Um, so I started looking at this. I was also working on my second book, The Fate of Knowledge, and I thought as I um, got more deeply into the work on behavior and became convinced that there was a pluralist account to be given of it, that I would use it as an example of um, an extended example of pluralism in The Fate of Knowledge. Um, but when I got to that uh, stage, I realized that um, it would be selling the issues short to treat this this uh, as a, an illustration of philosophical points um, rather than kind of studying this area of research uh, as a philosopher for its own merits, mm-hmm. for its merits, if you will. Um, so that's how I came to actually write the book. Um, and of course... Um, as I wrote the book or was working on the book, I came to appreciate, I mean, more and more happened in the field of research for one thing that I had to keep track of. And it, it just became really um, uh, very much more complicated than uh, what I had initially envisaged. So that's how come there's a book now. <laughs> so um, the book itself is structured, has a, you know, in the first part you give a very detailed you know, critical analysis of, of uh, you know, about half a dozen different approaches to studying human behavior. And then in the second part, you, uh, you know, sort of focus on philosophical issues. You know, once you've kind of gotten the, the data out there, then you, mm-hmm. then you look at it. Um, but, I, you know, as I thought more about the book, I was thinking about, you know, how it, it seemed to me to be um, – uh, a, a sort of prolonged meditation on the nature-nurture dichotomy that kind of dominates the way we think about explaining human behavior. And I saw it as a, you know, sort of a very fundamental kind of critique of the dichotomy itself. Um, one being the idea that, you know, the division, how that division is drawn is unstable and relative to these different ways, you know, different approaches um, and then the idea that, uh, and this is a bit more complicated, but you know, we, we, you know, I'd like to get to it as well. Um, the idea that um, the divide itself, however you draw it, um, uh, kind of reflects a, 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 an unjustified or undue emphasis on uh, individual dispositions rather than sort of population level properties. Mm-hmm. Um, in explaining it. So so there's those, those two aspects, you know, which you were saying, you know, the the whole nature and nurture, it's not just a matter of, oh, it's both, but it's that whole way of looking at, 
human behavior that is itself problematic. Um, so if, if we started with the first issue, um, uh, maybe you could uh, maybe you could say a word first about the different approaches that you uh, that you examine in the first part of the book, um, and then you know how they categorize nature and nurture and the the sort of incompatibilities that you see um, in how they divide up the problem space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um... When I when I started, of course, I was just looking um, because everybody seems to look at um, classical quantitative behavior genetics, and sometimes with a nod to the molecular genetics um, and um, so approaches that are that focus on the social environment of, of rearing, whether that's parents, schools, or uh, or whatever. And um, as I kind of went more deeply. Uh, into the area, um, I saw I had to differentiate between uh, quantitative genetics and uh, molecular behavior genetics. <clears throat> I also uh, came to see that neurophysiological approaches were independent of uh, genetic approaches um, and um, that there were some interesting efforts to uh, integrate um, biology and or biological and social approaches um, there is developmental systems theory, um, which basically argues that um, all causal factors are on a par one with another. All causal factors interact with one another and affect the um, the uh, kind of mm, the tone or uh, uh, causal efficacy of other factors. Uh, to put it that way. Um, there's a, another uh, integrative approach um, that was pioneered, or yeah, I don't know that they, they pioneered it, but um, uh, the most effective spokespersons uh, for that have been um, uh, Terry Moffat and Ashlam Caspi, uh, which is um, sometimes just a, a gene by environment approach, but more interestingly, a gene by environment by uh, neurosystem approach. Um, those were the ones I was initially uh, looking at, and then I also became aware of a very different way of thinking about um, behavior and studying behavior, which I've lumped under various different labels in the book, um, whether population level or ecological. But um, here the emphasis is not on trying to understand either individual development or variation among individuals, Rather, it's uh, an attempt to understand uh, behaviors as um, uh, in terms of their frequencies in populations and trying to understand not individual differences, but differences among populations. Now, there's a probably a slight, there's a, uh, there's some category differences uh, among these, but I don't think that they're that important for understanding the kind of difference in approach that I'm trying to uh, illuminate uh, in uh, analyzing the, the uh, kind of different uh, empirical uh, investigative strategies that uh, these approaches employ. So, um, yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, maybe you could, if you focused on 
uh, two of them, I mean, maybe quantitative, quantitative behavioral genetics and a social environmental approach, or, I mean, pick any ones. I, I thought the example that you gave in terms of how they cut up the problem space differently was particularly clear with those with those two, but um, uh, yeah, if you could just give an example of how they actually go about um, approaching the the nature of the explanandum differently, and then of course the different uh, explananda they give. Right. Well, um, one of the things that was really interesting to me as I got into this initially, I had first thought that maybe what would explain the differences between, say, uh, genetic, neurophysiological, and social environment uh, approaches was that they characterized the, the, the phenomenon to be explained, the exponendum, differently, that somehow there might be some systematic differences in what they were measuring as, uh, the, as behavior that would explain why they, um, in one case, took... Uh, uh, genetic factors, and another took social factors, and another took um, neurosystem factors as the important uh, explaining factors. Uh, and it turned out that actually the behavior itself gets observed and measured in pretty much the same ways uh, throughout these approaches, and that what differs is the um, the causal space that they then assign the behaviors that they observe in relatively similar ways. Um, how did I, I think I just lost the uh, verb structure of that sentence. But <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that they, the, this, the, the problem space is in some ways the same. Namely, it's, it's a, uh, about the incidence of behaviors measured pretty much the same way. Uh-huh. Uh, but what varies is are the factors to which they assign uh, these uh, behaviors or the differences in behavior. So that each approach is then trying to identify correlations uh, between uh, a given behavior measured in a particular way. And, and of course, there are uh, various ways of trying to um, operationalize uh, aggression, operationalize uh, sexuality, that's a whole other topic that we may or may not uh, get into. But there, there are uh, fairly common operationalizations, but then those operationalizations get uh, correlated um, in one approach to get correlated with um, differences uh, in heritability, say, um, and in uh, another approach they'll get correlated with um, certain features of the environment of rearing. In another approach, they'll get correlated with um, neurosystem factors. Um, each of these can generate, um, you know, correlations that survive statistical analysis, shall we say. Mm-hmm. That they rise to some level of, of statistical significance, but there's never um, uh, anything like, anything approaching uh, and and uh, a, a complete explanation or a complete correlation. Um, so they're all, in some sense, partial. Um, so, yeah. Well, one of one of the, the go ahead. Sorry, I was um, one of the things that one of the uh, 
conclusions you draw is that you know somehow these these different ways of dividing up the explanatory factors are um, are incompatible and and that this in some sense makes the different approaches you know behavioral genetics or social environmental or neurobiological um, makes them in some sense incommensurable mm-hmm. and of course you know these claims we're all kind of familiar with them from you know Kuhn and and you know the incommensurability of, of different paradigms and so forth so um, um, maybe you could say a word about um, about the nature of this this incompatibility and um, and why the, the approaches are incom- incommensurable on your view okay um, well it's hmm. it seems to me that if they're going to be if the for an approach to be commensurable approaches to be commensurable with one another they have to be operating in the same causal space um, that is they have to be uh, all measuring the same kinds of factors as potential causal factors and just coming up with different ways of assigning uh, values to those factors through their uh, different methods. Um, one of the interesting uh, features, uh, it seems to me, of this behavioral work is that the, the causal spaces that they operate in are different. And I try to show this uh, visually. It's um, going to be a bit of a challenge for me to try to articulate it solely verbally. But you can kind of arrange the set of factors that are taken to be relevant to variation in behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just list them or you can arrange them in any way. And then if you take any given approach, you'll see that a given approach is only going to focus on some subset of those factors. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the causal space that it's going to focus on. And anything else is kind of excluded from the space. They don't have the kinds of tools that are required to investigate uh, uh, the other space. So there are, the approaches will succeed in getting you know, partial correlations, but because all these other factors are playing a role, obviously they'll never get um, a, uh, a complete, uh, a complete, complete picture focusing just on the factors that they have the ability to investigate. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the ways, or one of the kinds of arguments that I offer for the both the incommensurability, well, for the incommensurability of uh, these approaches, because they're just they're simply not measuring. They're measuring the phenomena to be explained in roughly the same way, but they're not measuring the, the, the explanatory, purported explanatory factors in the same way. And, you know, you might think, well, okay, um, they, they each investigate uh, a different part of the causal space, but um, in the end, uh, we can put it all together and get some kind of maybe uh, additively a coherent account, or maybe uh, in the long run, some more integrated uh, account. But if you kind of, one of the um, effects of these different measurement strategies focused on the causal space is that different 
a given factor will fall into a different portion of uh, the space, and hence its effects will be measured differently depending on the um, investigative approach. So in, um, if you take something like ure- uterine um, factors, that is, factors that will affect the development um, of um, uh, an embryo or, or, uh, or a fetus um, in the uh, prenatal stage, factors that can, are independent of uh, genetics, uh, independent of the environment of a rearing, um, they can have to do with um, the mother's diet, features of, of uh, the maternal uterine environment that uh, have various other kinds of uh, uh, kinds of causes. For the um, uh, behavior genetic approach, um, the uh, uterine effects are going to fall into the category of uh, environmental effects. Um, and for the social environmental approach, um, those factors are going to fall, they're not going to fall into the category of environmental factor, rather they're going to fall into the category of biological or environmental. So, so there's there, this, the same phenomenon is going to get assigned to different categories, and so its effect is going to be measured differently depending on which approach uh, you take. Um, that's uh, in the case of a factor that is just essentially left out of uh, both accounts. Uh, there are other factors that um, can be incorporated into um, one account or the other or both accounts, um, but yet get, um, again, assigned to different categories because of features peculiar to the investigative approach. Um, an example from the book is parental divorce, which um, it's a little complicated to explain because it involves uh, talking about the way in which behavior geneticists, quantitative behavior geneticists, have um, had to deal with the environment because what they're trying to do is to kind of parse the causal um, uh, space into uh, genetic or heritable factors on the one hand and environmental factors on the other, um, they've they've had to think about uh, environment in fairly complicated ways. Just because the only ways they have of um, separate, separating out environment and um, uh, heritable factors is through phenotypic differences and birth and rearing differences. So they will, for example, treat um, a parental divorce as um, a matter of the shared effective environment if um, siblings are, uh, are similar um, and part of the non-shared environment if uh, siblings are different, uh, whereas a social environmental uh, approach um, doesn't parse the environment depending on features of the phenotypic features of the individuals, rather that it investigates the environment directly. So for that approach, parental divorce is going to be a part of the shared environment, whether the siblings are the same or different. So, you know, again, what's being measured um, and the kind of effect it might have 
is going to fall into different categories. And so the correlations, the measurements that you get as uh, the outcome of your investigations are simply not going to be um, uh, commensurable. So that's what I mean by incommensurability. And I think it's really, it's both different from and similar to what Kuhn was talking about. Um, Kuhn had a more, much more psycholo- psychologistic way of thinking about incommensurability. Yeah. You may remember he ta- you know, talks about gestalt experiments and um, uh, he's got the idea of the worldview and, and so forth. So this very uh, thoroughly permeating way of um, I- interacting with, um, with the world is part of what he's thinking about in terms of incommensurability as well as um, semantic incommensurability. And this measurement incommensurability, I think, okay. you know, restricts incommensurability to measurement mm-hmm. so we can understand each other perfectly well but we just don't measure in the same ways. And, and as a result, uh, it's not, one can't simply add them as you put them to get a complete picture. You know, the, the partial pictures overlap and crisscross in various ways. Precisely. Um, well, let me, let me just, so, I mean, all the sciences, you know, sort of isolate certain aspects of, of the world Right, focus. You know, in chemistry, you're focusing on particular things and hold everything else constant in some way, or just hold most of everything else constant and then manipulate one or two things. And that's sort of the nature of, you know, science. At least, you know, Western science is is to reduce the number of variables, mm-hmm. you know, to to a few that you can actually manage in a lab. Um, and this, but okay, so so. Um, in once in what sense is um, are the is is the problem space you know in studying human behavior between these different approaches um, if in all the other sciences you know physics chemistry biology um, if if all of these are you know in effect measuring uh, you know taking the world but taking it you know partial bits of it that are manipulable in particular ways. Um, Nobody goes from that claim to the idea that somehow physics, chemistry, biology, so forth are, are, are incompatible or incommensurable. They're partial and maybe they're not, you know, strictly speaking additive in some sense. Um, But it doesn't seem to preclude the idea that, there is a there is unification there of science in in some way, and so I I just wonder if you could maybe clarify how the the different ways of approaching of measuring the factors of behavior, um, why that isn't the same sort of differences that you find you know, between other sciences, between physics and chemistry or biology? In a way it is and in a way it isn't. Okay. Um, I, I, I think that, um, let me see how I want to put this. I think that the investigation that I've done here of the sciences of behavior could well um, be carried on for um, other uh families of scientific approaches that are attempting to explain the same thing. You know, um, you know, physics and chemistry 
while they're both somehow explaining features of the material world or of matter, they are um, uh, looking at different aspects of the material world. Um, I'm not sure I can fully uh, articulate what the difference is, but, but, you know, physics is talking about matter in motion, and chemistry is talking about, in many ways, the composition of, uh, of matter. And, of course, when you get to quantum chemistry and so forth, these differences start to disappear. But, um, but I think that no one wants to deny that there is a single uh, one world that we're uh, investigating. And here there's, I think, one of the differences between at least some of the ways of understanding what Kuhn was saying and, and uh, certainly what I and other pluralists are, are arguing. And because Kuhn seemed to call into question the very uh, meaningfulness of talking about one world uh, just because there were worlds that were perceived from within different paradigms and there was no way of getting outside a paradigm to even determine whether there was a common world uh, across different paradigms. Mm -hmm. Uh, The kind of pluralism I see in the sciences of behavior doesn't try to argue that there are different phenomena that are being explained, Um, doesn't try to argue that there's um, that there are different worlds. It's just trying to argue that there are different ways of trying to get knowledge empirically about human behavior, um, each of which can give us some knowledge, um, but each of which is also limited uh, and also um, not unifiable in any deep sense with other approaches just because of the um, kind of crisscrossing of measurement that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, hmm, so, uh, well, the, the, maybe you can bring me back to the. <laughs> um, well, point. you mentioned you've you've brought up the concept of of pluralism, uh, and I I did want to ask about that. Maybe you could say a word about. Um, about your form of pluralism, what you call pragmatic pluralism, um, um, and uh, you've sort of motivated it, and I was just wondering if you could say a bit about, um, you know, what this position amounts to. Um, Well, the the pluralism I think I've just uh, talked a little bit about, namely that that, uh, it's um, kind of epistemological pluralism. There are multiple ways of of uh, knowing the world um, or even knowing some portion um, of the world. And what we want to know may uh, vary depending on what uses we want to make of the knowledge that we get. Um, And one simple way of thinking about that might be just... um, you know, if we think about um, you know the different thing, different reasons we might want to know, have some knowledge about about human behavior. We may, for example, be clinicians who are interested in uh, relieving the suffering of of individuals. Um, 
and we may, um, uh, I mean, especially if we're thinking about uh, uh, psychological disorders, we may be interested in in uh, the neurostructural um, what we can know at least about neurostructural bases of of, uh, of psychological disorders. So that's what we're going to um, investigate because we think maybe if we understand something about that, we can, we can make some uh, progress in um, uh, biological therapies, say uh, pharmaceutical therapies. Unfortunately, those are rather um, <laughs> uh, prevalent these days. But, um, or um, we uh, may want to um, know which of a set of uh, social interventions, um, uh, ways to um, uh, help parents in uh, interactions with their children are going to be more more effective in um, uh, reducing um, violence uh, um, or bullying behavior um, uh, at, in a particular school. Well, then we might want to investigate various kinds of interventions uh, with, uh, with families. So each approach can, can, can tell us which uh, within the family of things it's investigating mm-hmm. uh, is more um, causally effective with respect to uh, some behavior. Um, what it's not going to be able to do is tell us, say, that a neurophysiological intervention is more effective than um, overall, than than uh, uh, retraining uh, parents in communication styles. Um, so, they it really depends on what it is that we want to do, uh, which approach is is more successful. And 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 so far, um, uh, we've just you and I have been talking about these approaches that are focused on on individuals, but I think if we include the more ecological population level approaches, then we can see uh, very clearly uh, how the pragmatist uh, dimension gets engaged because um, suppose we're interested in, say, reducing levels of crime. Well, (laughs) that conference uh, in Maryland that um, I start my book out with um, was motivated by thinking that somehow uh, understanding the genetics of uh, criminal behavior was going to provide uh, methods for reducing uh, reducing crime. Well, what's really interesting, I mean, there is that you can have um, the same levels of heritability of aggression in two societies, but very different uh, frequencies of aggression in the two societies. So, you know, it's, it's not clear that knowing anything about the genetics of crime is, or of violence or of aggression is going to do anything, be at all useful in um, reducing levels of crime, whereas understanding population level factors that um, may vary uh, along with um, uh, level of aggression uh, population might actually uh, help us to understand how populations differ and then uh, help us to understand what kinds of things we might or might not be able to do 
at the level of populations or at the level of social organization that could uh, reduce levels of crime or aggression. So that, that I think, is a much clearer uh, application of that pragmatist approach. Well, that that was actually one of the 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 other sort of big uh, criticism I I took away from the book was was the fact that um, uh, both among the scientists themselves as well as you know the the science the popular science press which which I'd like to get to um, in a minute but um, the fact that uh, we. Uh, in some sense of we are are very focused on um, the uh, the causal the the etiology of individuals you know what 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 people are individual people are are disposed to do by their genes or by their environment um, and because of this focus um, uh, rather than looking at the properties of populations in terms of distribution of, of actual expressed behaviors, um, rather than merely dis, you know, dispositions to behave. Um, and I was just wondering if you mm-hmm. could say a word about that, um, that, that distinction between the individual, the focus on the ideology of individuals versus explaining at the population level what difference that makes and um, even speculatively why we are so focused um, on the individual. um, hmm. There are a lot of, there are differences, certainly differences it makes in, in, uh, in how we are going to address something that we take to be worthy of addressing, let's say, uh, criminal behavior or um, or aggression, because uh, if we're focused on um, individuals and individual differences, then we are going to focus on factors that make a difference among individuals in a population. Of course, we always have to understand when we're looking at individual differences that what an approach can tell us is about individual differences in a population. You know, a, a population-level approach is, is, is going to be informative uh, about variations among populations. It's not going to be informative about differences among individuals. So there are very different kinds of things about which these approaches are going to be informative to the degree that they are informative. And we... Well, we're going to want to. We, we, why would we focus on on individual rather than population? That was really what you were asking about, and I think that's a really complicated uh, question, and it involves um, probably thinking, um, uh, doing a lot of heavy thinking in social philosophy that I'm not really prepared uh, prepared to do. But I think that. First of all, our ordinary everyday interactions tend to be with one another as individuals. And we're interested, um, we, ex- we experience individually the world as individuals, we interact with other individuals, we grow up in a, a, a moral culture that assigns praise or blame to individuals. Um, uh, we... Uh, 
there are aspects of our um, sort of religious culture, political culture, and so forth that are really focused on on individuals. Um, I also think that in uh, the United States, there's a um, uh, a kind of individualism that um, it has, has uh, permeated um, our our social fabric. I mean, if you think about um, just the um, public reaction to um, something that uh, President Obama said about um, uh, entrepreneurs who oh, were right. able to uh, field successful businesses. I mean, you know, it, the, uh, it, it just became a rallying cry. I made that. Um, right. Again, forgetting that there's a whole infrastructure that's, uh, that's required for any individual to uh, have any kind of success. So we, we forget about the infrastructure and just focus on the individual's um, achievement. So there's, there's something going on in our culture that I don't fully understand. Um, you know, you might call it maybe it's a frontier mentality or <laughs> capitalism gone wild. I don't know. I have no idea, really. Um, <laughs> but it's there. Uh, that's the only thing I can say. So, so, I mean, that's another dimension of it. And it probably that in the sciences that interacts with um, uh, a kind of um, reductionist focus that does see successful explanation as as somehow reducing phenomena to the um, next lower level of organization. Of course, right. even saying that presupposes a kind of hierarchical ordering, which may well be problematic. But so how? Um, yeah. Think some, uh, go ahead. Um, so what, one of the things you do uh, at the end of the book is um, you describe a you know some studies. Uh, that you did in, um, you know, basically with, you know, media communication studies looking at popular press, um, which is actually sort of rare. I mean, it's um, how science is uh, is disseminated in, in the popular science press, either, you know, magazines like Scientific American or the Science Times and so forth. Um, and a lot of that work, at least that I'm aware of, um, has been focused on uh, the popular uptake of, of global warming research. Um, uh, but you have, the, you actually conducted some studies with graduate students um, about uh, the, the, uh, the dissemination of, of information from the sciences of, of human behavior uh, into the public. So it would be great if you could say a word about the actual studies that you, that you conducted um, and their results. Sure. Um, yes. Well, I was uh, going a bit out on a limb in doing that because, um, of course, I'm trained as a philosopher and not as a, an empirical scientist. But um, uh, it, I, I did this um, partly because, you know, we, um, especially in um, philosophers who've thought about uh, the behavioral sciences. Um, have spoken as though there's some kind of direct relationship between what we see going on within uh, a domain of scientific research and the public uptake of that. Um, and of course, we if we stand back a little bit, we realize, of course, that that there's a 
vast filtering mechanism that stands between um, the public, as it were, and the actual research that's that's being done. And I thought it was important to kind of try to understand what, how the public gets to see what research is done. So I, um, this, this took a lot of uh, person power um, and uh, research assistants recruited from both graduate students and undergraduates, I have to say, um, who um, were tasked with, um, um, I, I asked them, I identified um, a variety of different um, kinds of uh, mass and quasi-mass publications and asked them to um, early on uh, get the assistance of a librarian, a research librarian, to um, get, get instances where um, either uh, research on aggression or research on sexuality was being reported and, and just bring me uh, lists of um, all the articles in a particular publication, usually in a 10-year period. Um, as, as the work progressed, it became easier and easier to do this uh, with the advent of things like, uh, especially like Google Scholar, for example, but also some of the um, uh, indexing services that are online. Um, still, it was work that uh, required uh, um, the person power of, of students. And then I would go through and read read a lot of this material uh, just to get a sense of how it was being, um, how the research was being reported. And it was fascinating to me what got uh, taken up and what didn't get taken up. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, as, I, as I say in the book, the, the vast majority of uh, reports of research on behavior do frame it within the nature-nurture uh, debate. That's, that's the kind of hook that's used to draw the reader in. So in, in addition to the other things we were just, uh, I was just talking about with respect to individualism, I think there's also a, um, uh, a, a way of reporting that's a function of the needs of, of journalism um, and the journalists suppose that what what we the public are interested in are questions like, well, am I the result of the way my parents raised me or of my genes, <laughs> something like that. Um, and that's the hook. Uh, you can see that, for example, on in the covers of popular magazines when they're going to carry a story about um, uh, behavioral research um, or in the headlines. Um, so the, the 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 popular press was. For the most part, uh, with just one or uh, a few uh, exceptions, um, f- really focused on on uh, genetic research, and then the way that um, uh, genetic, as opposed to say social environmental research, uh, were represented, uh, was very interesting because genetics or uh, neurophysiological research, biological research, was represented as the kind of research that was actually in the end going to give us some um, answers to the questions. This is where knowledge lay in the future. And um, uh, research that was focused on the social environment was generally represented as somehow terminally inconclusive. (laughs) It was was not, even though 
uh, in terms of various measures of um, uh, reliability or whatever, they were comparable, the way in which they got represented was very different. So, and um, I don't know why yeah. that happened. Um, so what, uh, if, if this, I mean, so it's, it sounds like uh, overall the the. The way the information, the knowledge is getting transmitted to the public is um, roughly in lockstep with the way scientists themselves. I mean, obviously there are different, you know, approaches that you look at, um, but the ones that get emphasized, um, and even uh, I, I think you also noted in the book how the scientists themselves, you know, between themselves tend to look at things from the from the point of view of the nature-nurture divide um, and that they frame it, even, you know, even if they are, say, approaching it from a, you know, social environmental uh, perspective, uh, the framework of that dichotomy, uh, they also hold to that framework. Is that is that correct? I mean, so it seems like this is a really tough thing to... Uh, to undermine. It is a tough thing to undermine. And, um, and I think, yes, I think they do uh, approach it within that framework. Even researchers who will claim that, um, of course, uh, it's uh, that um, behavior, uh, that uh, biology and uh, environment uh, interact, um, will show themselves to be enmeshed in um, the dichotomy through the uh, way in which they um, dismiss uh, research, say the way in which uh, researchers who are either of the DST, developmental systems persuasion, or um, uh, focused on um, uh, the social environment, will dismiss genetic research and vice versa. Um, so, uh, the, the, uh, they don't commit the error of saying, uh, it's all genetics, uh, or it's all social environment. Um, but they treat, uh, those who are doing research in the areas that they're not doing research in as committing that mistake. So, there's a kind of perverse way in which the nature-nurture dichotomy is still framing, framing the discussion. Yes. Well, how? Um, and I, yeah, undermine that. But, um, and and I'm glad you, you saw that um, this book is an effort to um, uh, show that that uh, the distinction is just really unstable and, in a way, untenable. That's great. Because I don't think I ever come out and say that. So, not explicitly, but it's it's sort of the whole tenor of the book. Um, well, how how would it look? How would how would the the research space and or the public knowledge space? How how would those? Uh, how might this you know, as a as a kind of a pro, positive, you know, um, aspect. How, how might this be overcome and what, what might uh, a post-nature-nurture dichotomous science look like? 
Well, I think that um, in many ways it would continue uh, uh, roughly um, the way it has. What would be different, I would hope, is interactions among the different uh, subfields investigating behavior. We, one of the things that I noticed when I was looking, I mean, in addition to looking at the um, kind of mass or quasi-mass uh, media representations, I also looked at um, the way in which representatives of different approaches uh, took up um, work outside their own approach. And it, it was striking again here that, that researchers tended to cite within their own approach, but not across approach. So I think it would be really helpful to have much more cross approach interaction. Um, this is difficult in the kind of um, uh, research ethos that dom dominates our universities and academies. So um, because we're oriented to produce and produce more than we actually think. Sorry, um, but that's the way I feel about it. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of, of uh, reporting of research. There's much less uh, reflection on research that might be gained by thinking about what is going on in, in uh, associated areas. Um, people have to get tenure, people have to get grants. So there's a whole economy of of uh, research that I think prevents the kind of reflection that I think would be really um, epistemologically useful. Um, so I think that but the research itself could continue because I think there's something valuable. Each of these approaches has something valuable to, to, to tell us depending on, on what it is we need to do or what it is that we want to know about. Um, I'd like to see better reporting on the part of um, uh, journalists. And maybe we just need some more social philosophy that gives us a different way of thinking about ourselves and society, um, ways that are not going to come from science itself necessarily, but at least ways that open us as a culture, uh, uh, open us up to different ways of thinking about how humans live with one another. But beyond that kind of mm, anodyne sort of thing, I'm not, I'm not sure what else to say. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to you know, also ask about going back to the issue of the difference between looking at um, properties of individuals versus properties of populations. Um, uh, what would... What, in your view, would um, focusing or, or emphasizing more uh, the population level uh, factors? What what might that accomplish? Well, I th it depends on the particular issue, but I think, um, well, as as you know, since you've gotten to the to the end of the book, one of the things I suggest is that. Um, our, our individualist focus leads us to think about crime uh, and the prevention of crime uh, in a particular way. We, we, we focus on the individual criminal rather than on um, 
social uh, uh, organizational phenomena that might um, have a bearing on the frequency uh, of of criminal behavior in given contexts. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I I realize that this is a kind of stretch uh, of reasoning, but I think we have a way of of demonizing. Uh, the people we end up putting in prison and um, and conflating um, people who are in prison because of uh, uh, nonviolent uh, violations, whether that has to do with uh, selling drugs or uh, immigration offenses uh, with uh, violence and treating and thinking that they are um, that there's thinking that there's no reason to worry about their their safety or their well-being. I mean, I think we have this horribly punitive attitude towards the individuals who end up in prison, many of whom uh, might well not have uh, engaged in the kind of behavior that got them in there in the first place if they had uh, been living in different kinds of uh, different forms of social organization. So I think if it led us to think about criminal behavior in a different way, that would be a great outcome. Um, okay. Well, we're, we are getting close to the end. Um, so I just, I just wanted to ask one sort of off the wall question in a way. Um, uh, at the very beginning, uh, in the introduction, you, you ask what, what can be known empirically, about human behavior, and um, and I wasn't sure if if you had intended. I don't I don't think so. But if you intended to suggest that there was something that could not be known um, empirically, um, and uh, the the idea that there are all these different approaches that they are in some sense, you know, due to different ways of measuring uh, the causal space, their their um, measurement incommensurable. Um, is it is it possible that all those approaches will somehow leave something out? That's a that's a really good question, um, and you're forcing me to think about what I meant when I said that. Um, I, I also I think open the book with acknowledging that there are lots of different ways that we as humans have tried to understand uh, behavior, human behavior, understand ourselves and others. We've tried to do it through art. Um, we try to do it through philosophy and and I think that there are probably limits to what uh, empirical investigation can can reveal um, not so much limits in in the empirical observable world but there can be aspects of say emotional life empirical investigation just might not be able to capture that are better captured through uh, literature or the visual arts or even music so I think that I think I'd be willing to stand by that. That um, and maybe what that is is not so much knowledge. Certainly not empirical knowledge, but there um, kind of an appreciation of what it is to be human. That that um, empirical investigation can't can't actually reach. And and the other thing I think I want to say is that. You know, we think of empirical investigation as basically generating um, uh, kind of 
measurement and and measurable associations between uh, uh, putative causes and and their effects. And I think that taking this more pluralist approach can give us uh, a way of understanding human behavior that is very much a function of the empirical research that's done, but isn't a direct outcome of uh, empirical research in the way that an empirical hypothesis is a direct outcome of empirical research. So I guess two ways in which um, there is either knowledge or understanding to be gained that's not totally empirical. Okay, well, um, I guess we have time for one final question, which is where, where, where to now? I mean, do you have a follow-up project for this, or are you uh, going off in another direction? I'm, I'm not sure I have a follow-up project to this, although I do want to investigate um, ecological thinking um, more deeply than I have, which may turn out to be a follow-up or maybe going in a completely different direction. I don't really know. Um, I'm, um, so that's one thing I'm going to be doing. And I also am interested, and I have just no idea right now uh, where this is, whether this is going to go anywhere, but I'm interested in, in thinking about whether the underdetermination problem, which is what kind of got me going in the first place, looks different when we're thinking about both data and hypotheses as um, as statistical or probabilistic expressions. But I'm just starting that question, so... Okay. That's what being successful is all about. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We we get to graze all over the place. So, yeah. um, well, um, I guess our time is up, but um, it's been wonderful talking with you about your book, um, and I look forward to hearing about your your next projects. Um, so, thank. Well, thank you, you very much. These really interesting. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Helen Longineau, Clarence Irving Lewis Professor of Philosophy at Stanford University, about her new book, Studying Human Behavior, How Scientists Investigate Aggression and Sexuality, just out from University of Chicago Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.